First Samuel chapter number 15. And just to bring you up to speed, we've been preaching through this chapter slowly. I won't do that throughout the entire book, but I wanted to do a little micro application, if you will, take a, a one narrative and divide it into four sections because I wanted to dig deeper into this chapter than I will in the future chapters. Even in 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath, I, I, won't, I won't break it up into a lot of uh, little bits and pieces. I will, I will treat the narrative as a whole probably, but I wanted to do that on 1 Samuel 15 because I, I feel like it's particularly um, relevant to our church and, and to me personally even. And, and so in verse 1 of chapter 15, it makes it clear what the context is. God has come to King Saul through Samuel and has, has given him a word, given him a command. And he said this, I want you to utterly destroy all the Amalekites, leave none. So he placed a ban on the Amalekites. Well, what did Saul do? He almost did what God wanted him to do. But he spared the life of Agag, the king, and the best of the livestock. And when he was approached by Samuel, he didn't repent. He exhibited worldly sorrow because he minimized it, he justified it, he denied it, he shifted blame for it. And then, and then even worse, he was, he was more sorry about losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. In other words, he was more sorry about getting caught. More sorry about the consequences and the sin itself. And, and then a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Samuel said, hey, this is how you get it done. He took out his sword and he hewed or slaughtered Agag into pieces. And we talked about the radical amputations that at some point we've got to be willing to make if we're going to keep Agag out of our lives. We can't hang on to him. We can't keep him prisoner. We've got to totally annihilate him or he will come back to haunt us. That's what sin does. And now we're to the latter part of chapter 15. And, and it would be a very, very easy detail, what I'm about to preach, would be a very easy detail to miss in the narrative, to miss in the text. The last three weeks have been pretty pointed, pretty intense. I think this week takes on a, 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 a very positive spin, an encouraging spin to all of us sinners in here. It, it's refreshing to me, but it's just three verses that we're going to preach, beginning in verse number 34. I'm going to see that Samuel has hewed Agag into pieces. He went one way, Saul went the other way. Look at verse 34. <clears throat> then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And I'm going to make a side note here because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that phrase, the Lord repented. But if you've ever wondered what that means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't, doesn't mean that the Lord messed up. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't need a backspace button, control Z, wide out, anything like that. Um, he didn't mess up. It means that he was filled with a, 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 a spirit of grief and, and regret. In other words, it was signifying that, that God was grieving internally over the sinfulness of man. It's like this divine sense of emotion that God feels when we live in rebellion toward him. It's regrettable. God didn't stop loving us. He just regrets that we chose a path of sin. It just grieves his heart internally. Chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill thine horn with oil and go, 
I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Look at the question in verse number one of chapter 16. How long wilt thou mourn? That's the question I want to fill your mind with. How long wilt thou mourn? Now, when I talk about mourning in this sense right here, I want you to know what I'm talking about. I want you to know what the original writers were talking about. This is a very severe word. Are you listening? This is a word used throughout Scripture to describe the deepest possible uh, type of, of grief. In the Hebrew, it literally meant this, to be well. When you see this word used in the Bible and other places, it's almost exclusively used to describe the grief somebody feels when they lose somebody close to them. When they bury a loved one. For instance, you could go to Genesis 37 when, when Jacob heard from his sons the made-up story that Joseph had died. He'd been killed by an animal. Look what it says. Jacob rent his clothes. That means he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. He was convinced his son was dead. And he mourned as though he was dead. Same exact word used in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can go to 2 Samuel 19 and verse 1. David got word that his son Absalom had been killed in battle. Look at his response. Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth. Same Hebrew word used in 1 Samuel 15. So, 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 so here's the point. What Samuel was feeling was the same thing a parent feels when they lose their child. It was a deep mourning. Now, in this day, the custom was, was, was pretty elaborate when it came to this type of mourning. It lasted anywhere from seven days to 70 days. Many times they would rent their clothes. They would tear their clothes. They would dress themselves in sackcloth like, like, like something that represented mourning and grief. They, they would pour ashes or dust over their head. Many of them would shave their heads. They would fast for many days. Oftentimes they would hire professional mourners. Well, seriously, in the Middle East, they, they would hire these ladies that would stand outside of their homes and they would literally be well out loud. Sounds like a strange practice, but what, what it was signifying to the village or, or the townspeople around them was don't come in. This person is hurting deeply. This person is in a, series of, a season of mourning. Pray for them. They are grieving deeply and they would hire these professional mourners. I say all that to get you to realize what Samuel was going through here. There's a reason God said, how long are you going to mourn? Because Samuel was indeed mourning. He wasn't sad. He wasn't disappointed. He didn't have a bad day. The man was crying and grieving and renting his clothes and shaving his head and fasting for maybe up to 70 days because he felt like he lost his own son. You might say, well, Saul wasn't dead. Why was Samuel grieving to such a degree? Well, if you paid attention in verse 35, the writer says Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. To Samuel, Saul might as well have died because this would be the last time he would see him. What's obvious here is that Saul meant a great deal to Samuel. You don't grieve this way and this deeply unless this guy means a lot to you. Why was that the case? I'll tell you why it was the case. Because Samuel had been Saul's mentor. His father figure. 
Think about all the things that Samuel was there to witness and to walk Saul through. It starts all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the children of Israel said, we want a king. God said, no, they said yes. God said, no, they said yes. And God finally gave them what they wanted, which is a dangerous thing for God to give you what you want. And what you want is not what God wants. And Samuel was there to go through all of that with them. Samuel was there to, to see this young man from the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Saul, a goodly young man, even had a humble spirit, head and shoulders above everybody else, tall in stature, strong in physique, looked just like a king would look. And Samuel was the one to find him. Samuel was the one to anoint him with oil. Look up here. Samuel was the one to take that horn of oil and pour it over his head. Give him a kiss on the cheek so as to say, I approve of you. And Samuel was there to watch as God put down his spirit on King Saul. Like he divinely empowered him to lead in military victories and to lead these people when Saul, all he had was like a farming degree. He he, he wasn't dumb by any stretch of the imagination. He was a smart man, a strong man, a hardworking man, a blue-collared man. He just wasn't familiar with leadership principles in terms of a nation. But God put his spirit upon him. Samuel saw that. Samuel walked him through those early steps, but then 1 Samuel 13 came and Samuel had to watch as Saul took upon himself the role of a prophet, the role of a priest, and he made that burnt sacrifice. He didn't want to wait on Samuel. He got desperate. He got impulsive. Remember that message I preached that you only make matters worse when you take matters into your own hands? And Samuel had to watch that and Samuel confronted him and said, Saul, you should have slowed down. You should have waited on me. I said I would be here and you just got impatient and impulsive. And instead of Saul repenting, he excused it away. Samuel was there to give him the conditional prophecy. If you don't repent, you're not going to be king and your sons aren't going to be kings. We get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Destroy all the Amalekites. He doesn't do it when confronted. He excuses, denies, minimizes and blames other people. And it was Samuel that had to look at him in the eyeballs and say, I gave you a conditional prophecy in 1 Samuel 13. And now this prophecy is no longer conditional. God is done with you. You will not lead God's people. And what he meant by that is not that you stop being king at this moment. You can be king the rest of your life, but Jonathan will not be the next king of Israel. The dynasty will not continue within your family. It's done. You've messed it up. You've ruined it. You had all these chances. And Samuel had to watch Saul go from someone with a lot of potential. Someone who the Spirit of God empowered to someone that made a mess of their life. You ever watch that happen in somebody's life? Being a youth pastor for a decade, I've watched a lot of young people that we threw our life into. We paid for them to go to camp. We paid for them to go to youth conferences. I showed up when their parents were ticked off, didn't know what to do with them. We invested into them. Some people paid for them to go to the Christian school in some regards. Boy, we watched some teenagers that had so much potential, had so much investment, had so much love, and they got with the wrong crowd. Something happened, they got a chip in their, on their shoulder and, and they, they, they struggled with authority or whatever the case might be and they just started down the wrong path. And here's what, I, I felt so helpless. I felt like Samuel had to have felt on this day. I could do nothing to stop it. I can't change their behavior. I've had talks with them. I've tried to shake them into a good attitude. I can't do it. I, I preached, so I was blue in the face. 
We've punished with grace and we've punished with no grace and nothing is working. And it's like, I can't stop them, but I can see their destination. And my heart to this day still aches over the people that has so much potential and then just blow it. Like it almost mourns in that situation. Some of you have your own children, your own grandchildren, your own parents, your own family members that you look at and say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You know better. You were raised better. You know God. You know Jesus Christ. You know the Bible. You've had a good church. I know we weren't perfect, but what in the world are you doing with your life? And in those moments, you might get a small glimpse of what Samuel felt like. In your heart, you have stayed up at night praying and mourning. You've been frustrated. You've been angry. You've been deeply sad, even embittered at times. What is going on? I've watched marriages, marriages that that had so much promise, marriages that we took through marriage counseling, marriages that were so happy at the start, but they begin to neglect each other over time and a decade into their marriage, they just no longer even love each other. All it is is a business agreement. All it is is them staying together for the kids. And as a pastor... I'm looking at that and saying, man, God wants so much more for your marriage. Why aren't you letting it live up to its potential? Why do you just go through the motions? Why are you contented with just a roommate? Why is the only talk you ever have is who's picking the kids up from school? Why? I look at adult children that have severed a relationship with their parents. Over, I'm just going to say it, stupid stuff. Stupid stuff. And I look and say, why would you damage a relationship with the people that love you the most? Because of your pride. I've seen parents do the same thing towards their adult children. Stubbornly embittered towards them for a decision they make or how they were treated. And I look and say, that relationship, it's going to change. It's going to change over time. As adult children grow and get married and leave father and mother, it's going to distance. It's going to change. But there ought to be a measure of respect and love there for life. Why is it not there? I look at pastors. I see one in the mirror every day. Pastors who are called by God. Pastors who have been given a church to lead and to feed and to love and to preach to and to pray for. I look at one in the mirror every day and I'm humbled by that. But yet I see so many pastors that have so much potential and the hand of God on their life and they mess up. They stop walking with God. They neglect their prayer time. They neglect their marriage. And pastors who God wanted to use, it's almost like they just walk away from the pulpit. And and if things like this don't grieve you, then you don't have the heart of God. If people you love and know 
can, 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 can live in such a way that, that, that is, it is below their potential. They can mess up and fail and walk down a path of rebellion so long that they really mess things up. If that doesn't grieve your heart, you don't have the heart of Jesus. You should never, never in your heart want to rejoice inwardly in some twisted way about the messing up of another child of God. There should be no sideline conversations that say, oh, I knew they'd get themselves in this mess. There should be no Facebook gossip going on about children of God, especially in your family, especially in your fellowship family that are in sin. We ought to grieve for them. Mourn for them. Yeah. Yet, in this room, it might not be that you're grieving over the failure and sin of somebody else in your life. It might be that the real grief in your heart is your own sin. Instead of grieving like Samuel did over Saul, you're Saul. And in your heart, you look in the mirror and in your heart, you know it. You know you've messed up. You know you're messing around. You know you're living below God's best for your life. You know Agag has gotten the best of you. You know you kept the Amalekites around too long. And the person that, that discourages you the most is not somebody else in this building, is not somebody else who shares your last name, who's not somebody else that's going to go home with you tonight. The person that discourages you the most and, and, and concerns you the most is you. What do you do? What do you do when you're in that situation? When an Agag has held you captive for so long, you come down to an altar, say, I'm sorry, but you do it again. You repent, but you do it again. You start with a clean slate, but you dirty it up again. And if you're honest with yourself, you said, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. It's not that I've not tried. I just can't keep from falling. And I, for one, am Saul. I am frustrated with myself. I'm discouraged with myself. I can't help but lose my temper. The moment I think I have victory over it, something else sets me off. I can't Get over lust. It's pornography. It's wicked thoughts. It's one picture on social media that leads me to one profile that leads me to another picture that leads me to another picture. It's my mouth. It's my words. It gets me in trouble at work. It gets me in trouble in my marriage. It gets me in trouble with my kids. It's my laziness. It's my self-pity, it's my pride, it's my impulsive spending. You might just be honest with yourself and say, I'm broken tonight. And I'm frustrated with myself. And if that's you, you might find it very easy tonight to be stuck in what I'm going to call 
The land of what could have been. That's where, that's where Samuel was stuck. He kept himself up at night. He was mourning, maybe seven days, maybe 70. Not feeding himself. Not bathing himself. And he was stuck in the land of what could have been. Oh, what could have been if Saul would just obeyed? What could have been if Saul would have just repented when I confronted him? What could have been if Saul would have just taken the empowerment of the Spirit and the calling of God on his life seriously? Oh, what could have been if that boy would have just listened? And he was stuck there. And that's where God comes to him and asks him a very simple but loaded question. He said, how long will thou mourn? God is making a statement to Samuel through this question. And he's simply saying this, Samuel, it's time to move on. What's done is done. I've made my decision. The consequences are chosen. It is what it is. Stop mourning and move on. Do you know it's possible to mourn over your sin for too long? Are you hearing me? For the child of God who in God's eyes finds no condemnation, only justification, do you understand that it's possible for, for you to mourn over a particular sin for too long? Don't misunderstand me. Mourning is absolutely a key ingredient to godly sorrow that leads to godly repentance. I struggle to accept anybody's repentance as legit if there's no sorrow or mourning attached. Yet God is clearly telling us here that though mourning over our sin is essential, we don't need to stay there forever. Oh, it's good to be humbled over our sin. We can't skip that in the process. But there is nothing humble about sitting around in our own self-pity. There is nothing humble about being stuck in the land of what could have been. Listen to me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Self-pity is doing nothing but thinking about yourself. It's not where God wants you to live. Well, Brother Tyler, I just can't ever seem to keep my commitments to God. I start, but I never finish. How long are you going to mourn about it? Oh, I can't believe I screamed at my spouse again. I can't believe I lost my temper at my kids again. I, I, I'm such a terrible parent. I intimidate them. They flinch when I'm around them. I know I built bad habits. How long are you going to mourn? Oh, I'll never be trusted again. If I would have just said no, if I would have just thought about it a little longer, if I would have just done the right thing, I wouldn't be here right now. How long are you going to mourn? Look at me, pastor, I'm a mess. I told God I would quit this a thousand times, and yet here I am again. It's making me broke. It's destroying my marriage. It's ruining my conscience and my testimony and my purity. Why even try anymore? How long are you going to mourn? Just move on. Okay, but what do I move on to? I'm glad you asked. The last part of verse 1 of chapter 16 says, God said, fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his son. Look up here. Don't get distracted. God told Samuel, I know Saul had a lot of potential. I know he had a lot of promise, 
The spirit I put upon him was very real. I know you believed in him. I know you mentored him. I know you was a father figure to him. And I know he let you down. I know he sinned. I know he lost his kingdom. But Samuel, listen, that doesn't mean I'm done. These are my people, not Saul's people. Not your people. I've still got a plan. So hey, Samuel, get up. Take those sackcloths off. Put your garments back on. Wipe those ashes off your head. Grow your hair back. Fill your horn with oil. Fire that loud lady on the outside of your house. I've got a new king. I've got a new plan. I've got a great future in store. Hey, though the king failed, the kingdom will still go on. When you sin, guess what? God is still God. God was telling them this, I know you're mourning over what could have been, but it's time to move on to what I want to do right now. And that's the essence of the message for every one of you tonight. Stop mourning what could have been and move on to what God wants right now. Parents, if you messed up, you messed up. How long are you going to mourn about it? Move on. To what God wants for you right now. Maybe God wants you to love your adult child like you never loved them when they were an adole- ad- adolescent. Is that right? Or a teenager, because they're really hard to love. Okay, maybe you messed up your finances. You had to declare bankruptcy or you're really close. You're in a ton of debt. How long are you going to mourn about it? What does God want for you right now? I'll tell you what he wants for you right now. Better spending. Tithing. Giving generosity, faithfulness, not impulsiveness, patience, diligence, hard work, eat nothing but beans until you get your debt paid off. That's what God wants for you to right now. How long are you going to mourn? Are you going to keep swiping the card? Move on. Just because you got in debt yesterday doesn't mean God can't help you get out of debt today. He, had, he has a future for you. He's not done with you. Okay, so you've built some really bad habits in your marriage, almost to the point where you think you can't overcome those things. And and, and you talk to each other in such a way where it's like you never have a normal conversation. It always blows up into World War III. Okay, how long are you going to mourn about that? God wants you to have a good marriage starting right now. And last time I checked, it's never too late to do the right thing. So why don't you start right now being the wife that God wants you to be? Why don't you start right now being the loving husband that God wants you to be? Teenagers, maybe you've messed it up. Maybe you've given your purity. I hate that if that's the case for you. Single adults, maybe you've given away your purity. Don't let any preacher ever convince you that God's done with you because of that decision. There will be lifetime consequences for that, that you will regret maybe the rest of your life. But how long are you going to mourn? God still has a plan for you. God sells a future for you. God's not done with you. Are you listening to me tonight? Maybe you haven't tithed and been faithful in your giving for three or four years. And you're thinking to yourself, why start now? How long are you going to mourn? Start doing the right thing today. God wants to use you and bless you and pour out a shower of blessings on you for your generosity and faithfulness. It could go on and on and on and on. Here's the point. If you're still breathing, God's still working. If you're not dead, God's not done. So why are you giving up? God, God's saying this to you. Fill your horn with oil. Take the sackcloth off. It's ugly and itchy anyway. Grow your hair back if that's possible. 
Eat some good food. Wipe the dust off your feet, the ashes off of your clothes. Get to an altar and say, God, with your help, I'm picking up my horn of oil and I'm going to walk into the future you have for me. Agag's a part of my yesterday and you're a part of my today. See, some of you might have the story of Saul right now, but God is saying this, I want to give you the story of David. In other words, you have a past that haunts you and God's saying this, if you repent, I have a future that awaits you. And if you know anything about David, he's a pretty good representation of a good future. Surrender to God. You know, it's funny. You look at the hall of faith, as we call it in Hebrews chapter 11. We always brag on those great characters of God, don't we? I got to looking at that this afternoon. You know what I discovered in that list of great characters of God filled with faith? You know what I discovered about every one of those people, men and women? They all messed up. I don't think it should be called the Hall of Faith. I think it should be called the Hall of Grace. Because I don't think their faith put them there. I think it was God's grace (laughs) that put them there. Because I just wrote down a list. Abraham was impatient. Noah was drunk. Jacob was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Ruth was an idolater. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a scaredy cat. Samson was a womanizer. David was an adulterer. Solomon was greedy. Peter was a loudmouth. Thomas was a doubter. Mary Magdalene was demon possessed. Paul was a persecutor. John Mark was a quitter. Yet those cats are placed on a pedestal. And here's the encouraging thing. They're just like us. If you were to pinch their arm, they would say, stop. That hurts. They're made out of the same flesh and blood that we're made out of. Here's the difference. When they messed up, they went forward. They had the faith to believe that God can pick me up and God can clean me up and God can put me back on a good future, on a good path. They just didn't stay down. A just man follows seven times and get back, he gets back up again. All seven times. Stop mourning. What could have been? Get out of the land of what could have been if you would have done this, would have done that, whatever. You might have consequences you carry through the rest of your life. You'll have to have God's grace to deal with that. But please, church, start doing the right thing right now. Some of you with your health. Some of you do some things, habits with your health that you keep putting off. And that's the temple of God. And maybe, maybe I need to speak to, to that tonight. Because you know health difficulties brought on by our own bad choices. You understand that affects a lot of other areas of our life. And we don't speak on this enough. And I don't want to be judge, judgmental, condescending tonight. But it's a very real issue. That a lot of folks struggle with, 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 with habits that, 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 that are obsessive. And dangerous to their health. And that's, that's whether you're skinny or whether you're heavy. Both struggle. And you, 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 need to, you need to be serious about stewarding the health that God has given you. And if that's your agag, stop mourning about it. Stop saying, well, I've tried a million times. Figure it out. With God's grace and with the Spirit's help. Say, you know what? I'm going to try again. I'm just going to, I'm going to give it another shot. And give it another shot. Amen. 
If you're stuck in the land of what could have been, the message is very simple. Get out. Three questions. Do you personally need to move on from something? An agag in your life? Something that's devastated you for years? Do you need to move on? Are you mourning over it for too long? How do I know if I'm mourning over it for too long? If you're mourning over it, it keeps you from moving on to what God wants you to do right now. Question two. Do you need to let someone move on? Is there a King Saul in your life? I'm saying, is there anybody in your life that you just can't forgive for what they've done? Or even if you've forgiven them, it's as though you just keep reminding them of their sin and won't let them move on from it. It shows up in every one of your arguments with them. You use it as ammo against them. Maybe you're motivated by the fact that you want them to feel sorry for as long as possible. And if you're letting them to move on too quick, you'd be letting them off the, off, off the hook too easy. Or you just interpret their wanting to move on as a lack of remorse. You want to see them in sackcloth for a, lot, a little bit longer to, to let you know they're serious. Hey, listen to me. That's in between them and God, not them and you. There's a time of trust building and reconciliation to fully take place. But let us not be guilty of getting in the way of anybody's recovery from sin simply because we can't get over it ourselves. Question three. Do you need to help someone move on? They think God's done with them. They have no hope of a better future. You know they wear nice clothes when they come to church, but really you know they're dressed in sackcloth. Covered in ashes, stuck in the land of what could have been. You're not there right now, but you know they are. You can almost see the hopelessness in their eyes. Why don't you be an agent of God's grace in their life and help them move on to what God wants for them right now? Why don't you be that that restoration agent? Fueled by, 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 by the grace of God and you, re, you restore them. Like those disciples would mend their nets after they spent a long day out fishing. You know why they'd mend them? Because they're going to use them again. It's the same exact word when Jesus says restore your brother in Christ when they've fallen. Same exact word as mend the nets. You know why God commands us to do that? Because he's not done with you. And maybe you need to help somebody. Move on. It could be a wife, a husband. Could be a child, grandchild, fellow church member that you know well. Whatever the case might be, I hope that you will not live in the land of what could have been, but you will move on to what God wants for you right now. If you agree with the word of God, say amen. amen. Stand to your feet.